Attention Northwest Arkansas businesses and talent seekers. Introducing Onboard NWA.com, your hyperlocal job board crafted for our unique community. Struggling to find the perfect match for your job openings? Onboard NWA simplifies the hiring process, connecting you with the region's top talent through tailored talent matching solutions. Whether you're an employer seeking expertise or a professional looking for your next opportunity, Onboard NWA is here for you. Discover more at onboardnwa.com and let's build the future of Northwest Arkansas together. Northwest Arkansas, Randy here, bringing you a quick word from our sponsor, Signature Bank of Arkansas. Since 2005, Signature Bank has been all about empowering our community with local ownership and top-notch banking services. Signature Bank's roots run deep with assets over a billion dollars, and they're right here in your backyard with branches in Bentonville, Rogers, Springdale, Fayetteville, and now including Harrison and Jonesboro. With a growing family of more than 200 teammates, they're ready to serve you with the warmth only a true community bank can offer. And they've got Banco C, the first bilingual bank in Arkansas, to ensure that banking is for everyone. So give Signature Bank a call at 479-684-3700 or visit Signature.Bank online. Mention you heard about them on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast for that personal touch. Signature Bank of Arkansas. Big on assets, local at heart, and a proud member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. It's time for another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, the podcast covering the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life in general here in the Ozarks. Whether you are considering a move to this area or trying to learn more about the place you call home, we've got something special for you. Here's our host, Randy Wilburn. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you as I always am. And today I'm excited because I get to talk about a subject that I don't know a ton about. Now, I have ownership of this subject that I'm about to talk about, but I don't have a lot of information. And so I thought it would be really helpful to bring an expert onto the podcast to talk about cryptocurrency. For some of you that may remember, we had the good folks from Mycelium on a while back. And and I'll reference that actual episode in the show notes if you want to listen to that, talking about the Internet of Things and the Helium network that they are part of for their blockchain technology of the distribution of like it's kind of like a disarticulated Internet, if you will. And if you want to learn more about Mycelium networks and what they're doing, they're just just downtown, just south of uh, like 
right in that same parking lot where our Sega's is, uh, where the coffee shop is, just at the bottom of the S curve. So you can learn more about mycelium. But today we have a bona fide cryptocurrency expert in the person of Carol Goforth, who is the Clayton N. Little Professor of Law. Clayton N. Little is a chair at the University of uh, Arkansas Law School, and Carol Goforth is sits in that chair, and she is the Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas, and one of her areas of specialty is cryptocurrency. And so I hounded and hounded and hounded her to come on the podcast, and she finally assented to this, and she is here today with us just to kind of and I asked her, I said, I want you to give us the cliff note version of cryptocurrency and make it as plain and simple as possible. Because I know a lot of you out here have heard about Bitcoin. Some of you may own Bitcoin and maybe some of you bought Bitcoin back in the day, but maybe some of you bought Bitcoin when it was $63,000 a coin. And now you're thinking, wow, what did I do? Because it's like, I don't know, at, at today's current price, it might be twenty, twenty-three thousand dollars $23,000, somewhere in that range. So clearly there's a drop off. But Suffice it to say, this is the episode for you if you want to learn a little bit more about cryptocurrency. So, so strap in and take a listen to this episode with Professor Carol Goforth from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Professor Goforth, how are you doing? I am doing great. And be fair, you didn't hound and hound me. <laughs> I am delighted to be here today. No, I appreciate it. Well, you're, you're in high demand. And I think that it's, um, I'd love for you just to, because I, I, I know a little bit about your, background and history. And for those of you that uh, you hear the name Goforth, there, there is another Goforth at the University of Arkansas, and that would be Professor Goforth, Goforth's younger sister, Sarah, who's over at the entrepreneurship of the Ronnie Brewer Entrepreneurship. The Brewer Hub. The Brewer Hub. Yeah. I, there's so many different names, you know, between them and ASB, TDC. I'm always trying to remember all the different names, but we have so many organizations here in Northwest Arkansas that really want to stimulate entrepreneurship and just stimulate good business. And so her younger sister, Sarah, who maybe I'll try to get on the podcast at some point in time, oversees that program and does an amazing job, by the way. I've been to several talks over there with Mark Zweig and several others. But definitely, if you if you see anything going on at the Entrepreneur Hub, you need to check it out because um, they put on a great program. But we're talking about cryptocurrency today. So Professor Goforth, I would love for you just to share with our audience just a little snippet of your origin story. We always call it our superhero origin story. So oh, wow. I would love for you just to give us the just give us the background of, you know, you getting to this point. You don't have to, you know, talk specifically about cryptocurrency because I'm going to I have another question for you that will lead into that. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I started my practice as a lawyer doing business corporate securities work and gradually moved into teaching full time, teaching a lot of securities and business organization compliance and regulation. And then about five years ago, I got a call from the Walton College saying, we're going to have a, a session with a group of entrepreneurs who want to start a crypto business. And we're looking for a law professor to come and help these entrepreneurs. And my response was, I can spell Bitcoin. <laughs> I really did not know very much about this space, uh, but nobody else knew anything more. Yeah. So I agreed to go and listen and see if I could provide any insights and discovered that the folks who were then interested in forming a Northwest Arkansas crypto based business were very knowledgeable about the technology. They were enthusiastic. They were bright. They were everything you would want in an entrepreneur 
except they were uninformed about the legal ramifications of what they were doing. Yeah. And I could tell from my experience as a securities lawyer that there were potential problems with what they were then planning to do. And I warned them about it and went back to my office thinking, wow, why didn't they do their research? So I started trying to do research about what the law was that somebody, a layperson could access, you know, what law review articles, what publicity, what information was out there. And there was virtually nothing. nothing. And all of a sudden it wasn't, oh, why didn't they do their homework? It was, well, why haven't lawyers and professors and folks who do know the law been writing about this? Because there is a growing demand and interest. So that sparked my journey into learning and writing about crypto assets. I have more than a dozen law review articles, two books, and it is a, an endlessly fascinating topic that continues to move so quickly that the law is always changing and always struggling to catch up. And there's always an audience and, and a need for more information in this space. Yeah. That's how I got started. That's how you got started. And I would say that, you know, almost presented to you a new opportunity to reinvent yourself because you took a sabbatical. I did take a sabbatical. I had a, my, one of the <laughs> wonderful things about being a law professor, about being a, a university professor in general, sure. is that every seven years or so, if you have a new idea, something that you think of as, this is going to take more time than I would normally have to get into it, Yeah, the university will let you take the time to do a deep dive. And while there was very, very little written from the legal standpoint, there were literally thousands of articles and publications and short little notes and blurbs. And I read literally a thousand different pieces dealing with various aspects of cryptocurrency, found that there's a jargon that is unique to the space that is flexible, fluid and inconsistent that I think makes it very hard for folks to get into crypto for the first time. Yeah. And then there are some things about the technology that if you are old like me, it's just counterintuitive. Right. It's just counterintuitive that if you look what a crypto asset really is, it's an alphanumeric sequence that is stored on computers. It's not a pretty little coin. It's not even a piece of paper. It is a long list of numbers that is stored on computers. And that's all it is. And the idea that a unique long list of, of numbers can be worth $63,000 is mind boggling. Yeah. And so it takes some time to get into that mindset. Yeah. So even, I mean, obviously you had heard of Bitcoin before you did your deep dive. What were your initial thoughts when you heard about it, you know, as maybe a challenger to fiat currency as far as that was concerned? My initial thought was, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I'm old. I right, mean, this right. is, you know, my mindset is it's hard enough for me to give up money and just use my credit card to pay or my debit card to pay for everything and not to carry cash around. Sure. That was hard enough. Yeah. To ask me now to go to something that is not backed by a government that depends on computer code that I have not any hope of ever understanding sure. is just beyond the pale. So my initial response was, eh, flash in the pan, doesn't make sense, it'll go away. Oh, I was wrong. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, and I thought, yeah, you know, it's and I have friends that have um, really benefited from cryptocurrency. I actually have one friend that he listened. I had friends that told me, hey, you should buy some Bitcoin back in the day. I just didn't listen. I was like, man, I don't know about that. Like you said, just like you. I mean, I'm I'm old. I'm 53. I know I don't look it, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting up there and I, I just I can trust things better when I can see them as opposed to not being able to see them. Yep. And that's the challenge. But I actually had a friend that um, this is a true story. And I remember when he told me about it, he said, yeah, you know, I, I somebody kept hounding me to buy some Bitcoin. I finally did. And this was probably like 2013. And so he Ooh. got it at really, yeah, really early. But he was able to sell his Bitcoin and, and uh, he decided at some point when it was still riding high that he said, you know, I, I just I would rather pay off my house. And he sold his Bitcoin and paid off his house. And, um, you know, he he was one of the few that like I know that really benefited from it in that way. And you hear the stories about people that have enriched themselves with it. And sometimes and I say I would say nowadays, it, which is why I wanted to do this program, is that people need to be even more careful about investing in cryptocurrency until they have a good understanding of where they're investing their money, whether they have the capacity to do that, right? Because even just investing in the stock market, you should only invest when you have money to invest and not on speculation. Right. And that's the big challenge right now is that you have a lot of people that are pulling up their pickaxes and shovels as if this is the gold rush of the 1800s in in California and that everybody's going to eventually mine some gold out of this. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I think that's right. I think that investment in a market like the cryptocurrency market should be for money that you can afford to leave for a long time or that you can afford to lose or ideally both. (laughs) And I actually, I think that's one of the reasons why you see regulators and legislators who tend to come down very heavy on the the let's regulate the heck out of this because sure. we are worried about the unsophisticated or the unsuspecting who might see the stories and the headlines of the Bitcoin billionaires <laughs> and think, oh, that's for me. I want to be, you know, I want to make a million buying and trading Bitcoin and not realize that for every story of phenomenal success, there are hundreds of folks who did not have that success and many who lost virtually all of their investment. Yeah. You know, and I got to think that, so now that you are a couple of years into this, into your your sandbox of cryptocurrency understanding, I, I guess is the easiest way to put it, are you finding that more and more law students are are gaining an understanding of what cryptocurrency is and and how law does apply to it in its current form? I have, when, when I am able to teach regulation of crypto assets, which is a course that the law school is able to offer, I usually get very good student response. So over the you know past few years, I have been able to teach a number of students in the law school. One of the other things that's just a great part of being a research institution. Not only do I get to teach law students, but I get to guest lecture in courses that are taught in the Honors College and courses that are taught in the Walton College. I got to do a guest lecture just last week in one of those courses. Yeah. So I not only reach law students, but I get to warn the business students and the computer science students who are enrolled in these classes. 
so that they are at least aware that there are these legal issues and there are this whole host, I call it an alphabet soup of federal regulators because they all use acronyms. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that's actually one of the beauties of the the cross-pollination of education at the University of Arkansas is that you have experts like yourself that are able to and kind of navigate the waters of different schools at the university so that everybody benefits from your knowledge. And it's not just the law school. Right. That's, and, it, and, that's and you work, so with the, work with the ag department, too, as well. Not so much the ag department, but we are also home to the National Agricultural Law Center. Okay. And they hosted a, a series of papers and research discussions on crypto in the agricultural sphere okay. where the, my most my most heavy involvement at the university is actually with the Walton College Blockchain Center of Excellent which um, That's a brand new program, isn't it? It's a relatively new. I think we've got I think it's been up for 3 years. Dr. Mary Lassity has has chaired that and it's been phenomenal in terms of involving the industry and supporting programs and development of resources, again, for businesses that are interested in blockchain technology, not just crypto assets, but blockchain in general. Yeah. So far in in your estimation, based on what you know about this program and about this Blockchain Center for Excellence, what has been the biggest aha moment that has come out of the creation of this program? and, And what are your hopes for what it will be able to do in the future? The Blockchain Center of the Excellence is much broader than what I tend to do. My focus really is on how the government is regulating crypto assets. The blockchain, the blockchain, the the distributed ledger technology that enables, that that empowers, that makes it possible to create these digital assets also makes it possible to do things like monitor and trace and supply chain kinds of issues. So the support from an interest in not just little entrepreneurial businesses, but huge companies like Walmart. That is an interesting thing. And I think folks who are not associated with Arkansas have this view when you start to, oh, we also have Department of Agriculture. Well, yeah, you're Arkansas. Of course, you've got ag. Right. In our backyard, we've got not the Fortune 500. We got the Fortune one, one. <laughs> company. Right. And it is involved yeah. in in blockchain. And the extent to which the entire range of businesses and range of uses that blockchain can fulfill, I think it is probably the biggest thing coming out of um, the blockchain center. Yeah. And it's exciting because when you think of it and you I've heard you give some examples about from an agricultural standpoint, ways that the blockchain can just benefit everybody, right? Yep. And you kind of talked about two layers of information that can be provided on the blockchain for, say, for instance, an avocado. Right. So a supplier for avocados can walk into a Walmart with certain technologies and be able to identify where that avocado came from, its origin story and everything that for their benefit, right? and learn more about this. Well, it's not just for their benefit. I mean, one of the things that is critically important right now is when you have an outbreak of foodborne illness, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, it was spinach. Pull all the spinach from all the stores. When really the spinach that's a problem is only the spinach from one farm that went through one processing center. And if you have to wait for conventional tracing 
your talking weeks. Yeah. You can't afford to do that if people are getting sick. Sure. So you pull all the spinach. Right. When Walmart did a test with trying to trace mangoes conventionally, it was two weeks and 10 days. When they put everything on the blockchain, it was down to 2.7 seconds. I mean, so <laughs> decreasing food waste, it's a decreasing, big deal. decreasing the risk of contamination, the human illness, the actual physical damage that a tainted product can cause. That's huge. Yeah. And it's not just to help the supplier and help the company, although it does, yep. because <laughs> decreasing waste is going to help their bottom line as well. Yeah. But it is a huge step forward in terms of all sorts of things that are important for the supply chain. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about just when you, you think of, can you maybe articulate what a smart contract is and, and what that, that's something yeah. that people have talked about, right? I've heard stories where people are like, well, the blockchain is going to make, going to revolutionize how we do mortgages and how quickly people can buy homes and that there'll be these smart contracts that, you know, are, what's the best word to describe it, that are infallible. Yeah. <laughs> Which well, is, let, <laughs> let me, the best way to describe a smart contract, and I'm, Borrowing from the words of Vitor Butalin, the co-founder of Ethereum, it's neither smart nor a real contract. <laughs> a smart contract is a part of the computer program that operates like a go, no-go switch, on or off. It's just, uh, did this condition happen? Yeah. Yes, then this happens. Right. Did it not happen, then that does not happen. Right. So all the smart contract does is let you tell was a condition met or was it not met? Was this Bitcoin transferred? It was next step happens. Right. It was not. Next step does not happen. Did this avocado come from this source? Next step happens. It did not. It doesn't go forward. So it's just an on off switch. The problem with saying this is going to replace and speed up and eliminate the middleman and remove errors is that the only way the information gets onto the blockchain is surprise, surprise, by people inputting data or by people that other make mistakes. Well, right. Or other programs or called oracles, because, of course, we've got code words for everything <laughs> in the blockchain. Right. But it's just a source to input data. And at the underlying most basic level, the programming, the data, everything is input by people. And regrettably, people make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So that that's where the infallible nature of the blockchain has to come into question, just because of the way that the blockchain is created. It's not that the blockchain is infallible. It's that it's immutable, which means you can't change it. And there is actually a, a huge advantage to that. Mm -hmm. If you are at a bank and you are trusting your money to the bank, you were trusting that the bank is going to keep an accurate record or, or ledger yeah. of how much money you have put into your account. And if somebody at the bank is dishonest, you were worried that they might alter that record and they might change it. And then if they're close to getting caught, they'll hide it and put the money back in your account so they can change, they can manipulate, they can alter right. the record because they control it. Yeah. In the blockchain, there is no one person who controls it because that the entire ledger is distributed among all of the computers that have access to the program. For all to see. For it, everyone to see. Now, it's computer code. So, yeah. yes, I could go see it. <laughs> I don't understand it. But it's there for me to look at if I right. want. And if I am sophisticated, if I am a computer programmer, I can check out 
and tell what it's done. And even if I can't read it, I have confidence that it's not susceptible to being changed by any one person. So the immutability is a huge benefit with the corresponding problem of, oopsie, I made a mistake. How do I fix the mistake? Because I can't unilaterally change it. And that's what sometimes causes uh, disagreements in communities and splits and some Division. kind of forks, yeah. forks in the network, right. which you might also have heard. Again, well, code words. Yeah. And I mean, we've heard about cryptocurrency theft. We've heard about, I mean, there, there are just, I mean, I don't know that they have figured that out yet, right? So Cryptocurrency theft is not because the blockchain has failed. Cryptocurrency theft usually happens because folks have not adequately protected the passwords that prove their ownership of the asset. Yeah. And either they have passed it to a exchange or a wallet service, or they haven't maintained this security and somebody else has their public and private keys, which are the equivalent of like passwords. Sure. Or the exchange or the wallet service is hacked and somebody gets access to the business's password or keys and steals the assets. Or finds a bug in the programming and exploits it, causing headlines. Exactly. Massive theft. Massive theft. (laughs) There have been several documentaries about that. And, you know, and a lot of people still think to this day that Bitcoin is a scam. Oh, yes. Yeah. So and that Satoshi that like, you know, they don't know who Satoshi is. And, you know, that's the quote unquote supposed to be the founder of Bitcoin. Well, Satoshi, uh, uh, Satoshi is the name that was used by whoever wrote the original, original white paper. Right. And, and that was in 2008, I think. 2008, with yeah. the first transaction actually taking place in early January 2009. Right. Yes. And to think that some of these trends, I've heard some crazy stories like at the early stages of Bitcoin, people would use like Bitcoin to buy pizza. And some one guy used Bitcoin to buy a pumpkin spice latte. Which like <laughs> I've you know, not heard that one. Yeah. And so there were there were a couple and and they did the numbers and they were like it was like that was like the most expensive latte ever and ten thousand bitcoins for two large Papa John pizzas. Right. So which even at today's prices, that's <laughs> twenty thousand times yeah. ten thousand. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty, lot. I'm, I'm, I don't do I'm public math. As big a so, fan of pizza yeah, as the I, next person. Right. That's a little much. It is a little bit much. Okay, so I want to ask you about something, a concept that I've heard over and over again about what they think the benefit, because like, then you also have, so we've talked a little bit about smart contracts. And again, this is just a real cursory glance at cryptocurrency. So please, everybody listening to this, do not take any of this and then go run and make cryptocurrency investments. This is just for information only. And for your edification, I encourage you, I'm actually here at the Fayetteville Public Library and the Center for Innovation. Shout out to those guys. You know, I always give them some love whenever I'm here recording, but they have a lot of information here at the library that you can get your hands on. Professor Goforth has amazing videos that you can watch to just to hear her talk about it from her perspective and from the perspective of what they are studying in in the law school about cryptocurrency. And then if you want to learn about the Blockchain Center of Excellence, they have videos. So there's a lot of information out there. And I encourage everybody to spend a little bit of time understanding it before you invest. Because trust me when I say this, and I have some friends that have the scars to prove it, you can lose your shirt trying to think you understand the market when you really don't and just kind of jumping in without any real protection. And 
I bring all that up to say that there's another aspect of smart contracts that, you know, I've heard people talk about and you can maybe shed some light on this. But one of the benefits of the blockchain and of smart contracts and also of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, which we've heard about, I own a few, but one of the benefits is that you can sell portions of ownership in something and not relinquish the whole thing, right? And one of the examples that I've been given in the past is like, say you own a piece of property and if you do a smart contract with this property, you can obviously set the contract up any way that you want to and maybe hold back a portion of the property so that in perpetuity, every time that contract changes hands, you could get something from that, right? Or it could be a house. But in this case, say it's, you know, if Picasso lived today and he sold his paintings and he put his paintings out as NFTs, that any time that his painting changed hands in a contract, you could write up that his family gets a certain percentage of those sales in perpetuity because this is an unassailable contract. Have you have you heard that concept? Or? Sure. Okay. Yeah. And, and NFT stands for non-fungible token. Right. Non-fungible meaning everyone is a little bit unique. So there's supposed to be something about each NFT that sets it apart from every other NFT. Think of it like if Picasso lived to get today, and instead of just having his original painting, he did lithographs. And so he does a series of 700 lithographs, very high quality reprints, reproductions of the original painting. They're each signed, they're each numbered, they're each a little bit unique. And over time, they're going to have a different provenance and they're going to be kept up in in a different way so that they aren't completely identical to every other lithograph of that piece of of art. Right. And so if I instead of doing it with a, you know, a tangible thing that's in a frame that I can carry around, I digitize it and I have this digital representation of this artwork, this piece of property, this asset of whatever it is, and I number it and it's unique. And I sell, you know, copy number one to you and copy number two to my sister and copy number three, however many copies I have. But each of them are somehow unique. Yeah. I can embed into the coding that what you are buying is you are buying the right to display that ownership on your whatever digital device you have. Right. I can build in that you have the right to resale or not. Yeah. I can build in the right that you have the right to commercialize it or Or not. not. Or to have limited commercialization. So you can edit it and put it on T-shirts up to $10,000 a year. Anything in excess of that kicks back to me. Right. I can build in anything I want as part of what I have transferred to you. Most of that actually would not be part of the contract, part of the code. It would be part of the sales contract because right now it would be too expensive to have a very, very, very long contract embedded into the code. So would that sales contract be a smart contract as well? No, it, no, would, it not. would not. It would not be on the code. It would be just a contract for sale. When I buy this NFT, what am I really acquiring? And that's been, it is not a crypto issue. It's not a blockchain issue. It's a contract issue. So okay. you might have heard that I think a group of investors in the United Kingdom spent millions buying an NFT 
of the original manuscript of Frank Herbert's Dune. I heard about that. And they immediately posted, oh, we're going to do such wonderful things. We're going to do an animated series and we're going to do <laughs> a prequel and we're going to not so fast. They did not buy all of the copyright. What they bought was whatever the contract gave them. Sure. And it apparently did not include all of that. Okay. So wow. knowing, knowing what you buy, yeah, exactly what you said, fools rush in. Yeah. <laughs> Don't that's be too a, eager. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. We're not calling anybody that's listening to this a fool. No, no, no. Well, we're saying that, you know, this this is something that you need to be aware of. And I think, you know, I, I'm glad you elaborated on that point because I think it's important. And I've heard a lot of, there's a lot of people that I actually have a lot of respect for that are out there on the internet talking about all the different ways that you can take advantage of cryptocurrency and specifically take advantage of the blockchain and NFTs. And, you know, I have, I got to admit, I have a couple of NFTs, some really cool ones. Not, you know, I don't have it. I don't have one of the apes or anything like that. I wish I did, but I a have crypto a crypto kitty. I don't have a crypto kitty. Okay. No, that's those things are worth a lot, but and some I don't know of them. How, yeah, some of them, but again, a lot of, a lot of the value of them rise and fall with the underlying value of the cryptocurrency that they are pegged to in certain cases. So I know that, you know, one, a lot of these NFTs are pegged to Ethereum and that's- It's not so much that they're pegged to Ethereum, it's that they trade on the Ethereum network. Network, right. And the cost of doing business, the cost of doing a transaction on the Ethereum network goes up and down. And so if it is very expensive to transfer things, that's going to make the market less enthusiastic about buying. Right. And that is definitely a factor in, you know, am I willing to put yeah. my money up and buy that not ape from you? <laughs> right. So, and I mean, in all these things, you know, you would hold in a wallet and, you know, there's this whole talk yeah. about. When you say hold in a wallet, that makes people think that they are actually storing the crypto asset in their wallet. Like you store credit cards. Right, right. You don't, that, that's not the way it works. A crypto wallet, and I hate that the crypto space has taken all these words that people think they know right? and they use them in a different way. But a crypto wallet just stores your public and private keys, That's your it. passwords. Yeah, It does not store. Those alphanumeric sequences that trigger certain rights or certain abilities, those are not stored anywhere on your device. Those are shared among the computers and the network. And the network. Okay. And that's good to know. I, I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. And that's why I'm having you on here in the first place is just for some education. Because I know there's there's always like people say, oh, well, if you want to protect your information, you know, you should get a cold wallet. And a cold wallet is just a, a wallet that is not connected to a network directly. That's right. It yeah. is just a device that you can unplug. Yeah. Think of and like a USB key while it is unplugged, nobody like can that. hack it. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. But you can still lose it. Yes, you can lose it. <laughs> which means that you wouldn't have access to your public and private key, which means you couldn't prove, hey, guys, I really am the person who owns that NFT, that yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah. That alphanumeric sequence is mine. Right. Well, yeah. prove it. And the other part is like if you lose your password, then you're kind of. You well, that's a, that that is your public and private key. That's. Right the information that you would have in your wallet. Yeah. And I've heard some stories. Somebody told a story about how she's got this USB key with her, her wallet information on it, except for the actual password. And she doesn't have doesn't have access <sighs> to the password. And, and she has some original Bitcoin that was given to her back in 2013 or 
2014 and she doesn't even want to know how much it's worth now. She's just said, forget it because she can't, you know, and that's the, one of the challenges. I mean, it's not yeah. like you can, you know, you can go to LastPass or one of these other services no. and, and find your key. You have to be, no. you have to be really careful about it. So. Yes, you do. <laughs> so. That's actually why folks turn to businesses that are wallet services or they store their they think of it as I'm storing my Bitcoin with this exchange right? when really they are giving custody of it over to the exchange and the exchange is using its public and private keys to control that asset, which means you've given up control over your asset. Right. And which means you have to trust who you do that with. You absolutely do. <laughs> and if you don't, then you got a problem. Which, which again, goes back to that message, you know, trust. But, but only after you have verified. Right, right. Trust but verify. Do, do your homework. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to, I got I two pointed questions for you. Have you, and now all the information that you have, have you invested in crypto at all? No. Okay. I am risk averse. <laughs> I have always been risk averse. And I think I mentioned earlier that I'm old. I might retire in the, you know. Yeah. In the foreseeable future. And if I hit the date when, you know, that's it. I, I got to leave. I got I got to take some time. Right. I don't want to not be able to retire because I have money tied up in a crypto asset. So then I want you to then based on that knowledge and the info and all of the information that you have, what is your advice to these? Because like all of my I have three boys, they're 17, 15 and 12. They are digital natives. That's all they I know. know. Isn't it amazing? It is amazing. And I know you have. And isn't it frightening? <laughs> it is frightening. But <laughs> so what is your advice to young people? And I'm assuming this would also lend itself to some of the kids that, that come into your classroom on a regular basis. But what would your advice to young people be today about cryptocurrency? I think that there are tremendous potential advantages. I think one of the biggest advantages is that it might be more accessible to folks who can't afford conventional banking services, who don't have bank accounts. That's probably not your kids and hopefully not mine. Right. And there, certainly for people who are in countries that lack stability yeah. or repressive regimes or those areas where there are large parts of the population that are days away from a bank, where crypto makes tremendous sense. Yeah. I think that there may be potential applications. Blockchain itself is tremendously exciting. I think there may be, if you're really, if you're paying attention, you know, when, a, when Ethereum came out, not Ether, the, the token, but Ethereum, the network with this idea that it was going to enable other crypto assets to sort of use its platform as a basis for starting their own yeah. forms of crypto. That was a tremendously, if, if I had known at the start of that, if I'd understood crypto at that point, that would have been a tremendously exciting investment opportunity. Yeah. At this point where there are so many new crypto assets and I don't have, I'm not digitally native. I'm, I don't have the ability to understand what the programming is. I can understand the regulatory environment. I can't understand the programming. Yeah. I think for your kids, for my kids, when you have the opportunity to learn programming, to learn programming languages, to become even more skilled, 
that is a tremendous, it is a gift. It is a boon. It is something that I think will open doors that you can't even foresee right. down the road. Yeah. So if you are so inclined and have the ability and opportunity, computer programming, computer classes, computer education, I am a thousand percent in favor of that. And then to always remember, you know, there, there truly are few shortcuts in life. And when you hear something that sounds too good to be true, it, it probably, probably is. is. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, okay. So you've, you've said a lot today. And, and one of the biggest things I heard you say, which there are a lot of prognosticators out there that have clearly said that the, the dollar, that fiat currency is on a slow burn and the, it's that we're starting to see the demise of currency in the way that we've always acknowledged it. I would say that based on everything you've said to me is that you're basically telling people slow down on that idea because you don't think that that would be the case. Well, <laughs> there is one complicating thing that I have not yet mentioned, and you may hear references to CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies. Yes. All of the crypto assets you and I have been talking about, the NFTs, the Ether, the Bitcoin, those are private cryptocurrencies. Those are not bought, backed by any government. Sure. Well, what happens if the government finds a way to put a fiat currency on the blockchain? It could be faster, cheaper, more accessible. It could have the advantages that crypto offers without the disadvantage, which is who created the, who created the programming? Yeah. How secure is it? Who's, <laughs> who's in control of this? Who's making a profit? Right. Is there some hidden back door to this sure. programming that I don't know about? <laughs> so if you kind of trust your government enough that That's it's, the operative word, right? It is. Yes. But yeah, if you hate the government and you hate the idea of you're dealing with the government, okay, a private Bitcoin, private cryptocurrency might be nice. But I think most of the world doesn't, most, certainly most big business doesn't operate that way. Right, sure. And you can't get away from big business because even if you're doing cryptocurrency, you are dealing with big businesses like Coinbase and Kraken and Gemini, the big players in the crypto exchange business, the right. crypto wallet services. But the CBDC would be a government-backed crypto asset that I do think eventually is going to be the game changer. So it's not true that fiat currency as we know it is going to be replaced by Bitcoin or some other crypto asset. Eventually, I think it's going to be predominantly replaced by a CBDC or a group of CBDCs. And from your perspective and in, in your area of expertise, from a legal aspect, if that happens, it will be much easier to regulate than the private cryptocurrency. They don't have to regulate it. They'll control it. They'll control it. Okay. All right. So, well, you have laid it all out on the table for us. You've talked about cryptocurrency, certainly your background and experience in it. And I think it's important that, you know, people hear very clearly that Professor Goforth's experience, she took time, just like anybody, to learn this industry and to understand it within the context of her understanding of law and of stocks and securities. And so, I think it's important for you to hear that very clearly. You need to do your homework before you even think remotely about doing anything with cryptocurrency, with non-fungible tokens or anything like that. Do your homework first before you jump into the water so that you know Unless what you're Unless you just want to play. If you've got 
you know, a few hundred dollars that you want to invest just <laughs> which is what wanna, I did, yeah. Just because you want to say, Hey, I'm cool. Right. <laughs> I own <laughs> yeah. it's not an ape, but right. I own an NFT I, or I own two. An NFT. That and that's <laughs> exactly that's fine. what I did. That's fine. Yeah. This is you know, life is too short not to have fun. And if this is something that really sparks your interest, go for it. Yeah. But please don't sell your home. Right. And don't cash out don't all cash of your, out your CDs IRA. and everything. Yep. And just put it all into cryptocurrency because that that may not end well for you. So correct. Yes. So well, she is Carol Goforth, Clayton N. Little, professor of law at the University of Arkansas, and just an all around cryptocurrency expert now, which we can call you that, I guess. And well, uh, I'm an expert in the legal regulation of cryptocurrency in terms of you know. Well, the word cryptocurrency is in there. So yeah, the word cryptocurrency is in there, but don't call me about you know which one's going to be the next. No, 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 no. I, no, I, I can't no. help you with you the don't value. Do any speculation. I no, so. no, no, no. <laughs> no, well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come sit with us and just kind of give us a little introduction to cryptocurrency. We're going to call this episode "Cryptocurrency 101," and uh, we really appreciate you doing that. And we wish you nothing but continued success with everything that you're doing at the University of Arkansas and the School of Law. But then also all the things that you you put your hand to throughout the University of Arkansas ecosystem. So thank you so much for your time today. And we really appreciate you. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you. Well, folks, there you have it. Another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn. And as always, I'm, I just enjoy sharing these stories. So I hope you like this particular episode. It's a little bit of a departure from what we normally talk about. But I think cryptocurrency is such a, an important concept such an important idea that we need to talk about it and at least have some kind of conversation. So like I said, once you've listened to this, go get some library books, go online, do your research, study up on cryptocurrency, just so you have a better understanding of what it's all about. That way, when you're at your next cocktail party, you get together, you can have an intelligent conversation with somebody when they tell you that they've spent all their money on Bitcoin and they don't have any left. So, but you can... You can figure out, figure all that out. Uh, remember, our podcast comes out every Monday, rain or shine. You can find us wherever great podcasts can be found. And I always ask, if you want to write us a review, please do it on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Give us uh, you know, we have some feedback. And we might even mention your review on a future episode. I'm Randy Wilburn, the host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. And we will see you next week. Peace. We hope you enjoyed this episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. Check us out each and every week, available anywhere that great podcasts can be found. For show notes or more information on becoming a guest, visit IamNorthwestArkansas.com. We'll see you next week on I Am Northwest Arkansas.